Alright, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll try to mainly tackle uh, verses 8 through 16. Uh, but before we, we did that, um, let's go ahead and just read the chapter in its entirety again. There's always a benefit in doing that. And then if we had any additional thoughts uh, about verses 1 through 7, um, any questions, uh, we'll do that. So, uh, Jesse, if you'd be willing to do that. Thank you. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the element of flesh and spirit, affecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. They're not speaking condemning, for I have said that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with hunger. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, now that you remain sorrowful, not that you remain sorrowful, but that you remain sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you remain sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, is producing in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. What avenging of all? In everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection bounds all the more towards you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him, with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Thank you. So we discussed several things about the first uh, seven verses in that chapter. Were there any other uh, thoughts or, or questions about the first seven before we kind of dig more specifically into what the Corinthians' response was to Paul? Oh, I can see the the emphasis of how um, infested not only Paul is, Titus as well, um, and, and that's that's what their ministry looks like. Um, it's not half 
hearted, it's not well, if, if you listen to me, great, if not, oh well, somebody else will listen to me. Um, but but if there's, a, there's a genuine love and concern. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, Paul was invested in these people. He loved these people. There's, there's, there's no getting around that. It's on every page, especially in the section that we read, right? Um, and even chapter 6, he's saying, look, our we're open with you, we're genuine with you, our hearts are open, we're laying everything out on the table here. You can clearly, contrasted to what you may be hearing about us, we care for you, and we want what's best for you. Yeah, Jesse. I like that, that concept of being invested. It, to me, I find it very difficult to invest in people. I find a reluctance to invest in people, and I think this is a good example of investing being very committed to even people that you think might fail, but still continuing to encourage, still continuing to build, still continuing to support, and that is a very high level of commitment. Right. Because that's the kind of love that God does for us, right? He demonstrates love for us knowing we will fail, knowing that we're not going to get this thing right, that we need help. He's investing in us because we need him too. Yeah, what else? All right. Uh, Andy Cantrell, in his, in his uh, teaching on this particular s- subject, he, he said that Paul was relentless in trying to help them change. He wasn't going to just try once and go, huh, well, all right, I'll try somewhere else. And he was relentless. He couldn't make the change for them as much as he probably wanted to, but he was, he was going after this. He was going after these people that he loved. He was relentless in his change. And we should take great hope in the fact that if a church with the kind of disunity and sin that we read about in 1 Corinthians, if a church like that could come to repentance like this, that should give hope for each of us. Considering where do we see ourselves in this story? Perhaps we are the Corinthians. There are things in our lives that we need to change and repentance is necessary. Perhaps we're in the position where Paul was in here, where we're trying to help someone else repent. And that should give us hope on either side. Keep after them. Be relentless in your love for them and try to help those that we see need to repent. And it should challenge us in these ways. Paul had some hard things to say and some hard things to do. But the benefit that he knew could come from a repentance like this was worth his effort. And, and that should be an encouraging, and encouraging thing for us. And he was even willing to involve others, like Titus, so that he didn't have to do it all by himself. He found other people who could be a benefit to accomplish this work. And so who can we involve? Maybe we've been, we've been after something, we've been trying to, to get through to someone, and we're just not making headway. Well, who, who, who can we involve? What kind of Barnabas can we bring in? Um, what kind of person can we bring in uh, to help this? And then I just want to point out in, in verse 6, That, uh, at least in the ESV, starts in one of my favorite ways. Verse 6 starts with, but God. And when a sentence starts with, but God, you know 
something awesome is going to be happening here. That usually a, a picture is painted of such terrible situations, a circumstance that seems impossible, but God. Um, I found uh, an, an article where they had found at least 25 or 26 of these throughout the Bible. And, and we can think of, of several. In Acts uh, chapter 2, uh, when Peter is presenting the information to these people, this Messiah you've been waiting for all this time, he came and you killed him. But he says in verse 24 of Acts chapter 2, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it, it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. Or Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he's been explaining in the first five verses here, uh, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted both from uh, things from the outside and things from the inside that we were feeling. It seemed impossible. It seemed uh, beyond our strength, and it was. But God is credited with the comfort that was provided by the coming of Titus. Um, God is credited with the change that was seen in these Corinthians. Other passages, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, um, Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, some ex exceptional examples of this. Look, when it is beyond ourselves, and most things are, God steps in and provides a way. And I, I find that really encouraging. So let's talk about verses 8 through 16. Um, not necessarily in any particular order, but uh, Paul is often hesitant to boast about himself or his own accomplishments. But in this section, uh, he readily boasts about what and, and why does he do that? We actually saw him do that a little bit in verse 4. And he wraps up this chapter by boasting about, what's he boasting about? And why, why does he do that? Yes, and so what, what is he taking? Uh, my translation in verse 4 says he takes great pride. What's he taking pride in? Some translations say he's boasting in. He's boasting in their response. He had confidence in um, how the Holy Spirit could be at work in their lives. And, and he used that um, whenever he spoke to Titus and said, I'm sure that they, can, they, that they will do the right thing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and so because they, they bore the fruits of repentance, um, it was not vain confidence. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't just trying to, you know, uh, boost them up in their own minds, make them proud. But what he was doing is he was demonstrating a confidence. He says, I have great pride in you, in verse 4. 
But he says in verse 14, whatever boasts I made to him, to Titus, about you, I wasn't put to shame. It it wasn't just puffing you up needlessly. I boasted about you to Titus because I had every confidence that when confronted with your sin, when confronted with these difficult things that I had to say, you would make change. And he said, it, it wasn't, I wasn't put to shame. Just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. I've been honest with both of you. He says, and his affliction for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. He was boasting in Titus, I know they'll do the right thing. They've got changes they need to make, but I'm confident that they'll do the right thing. Uh, We do that, we should do that with our kids, right? For those of us who have kids, I know you can do it. Come on, you, you can do this. Uh, we've been sending our kids to soccer, and it's been, it's been an, an, an experiment, <laughs> right? Ethan's done it a few years now. He's, he's getting it, right? But Silas is out there. He's trying to figure out what end is what, <laughs> what's the goal, literally. Um, but you help him by saying, look, I, I know you can do it. Get out there. Come on. And you don't want to, as, as a parent I witnessed yesterday, the goal's that way. What are you doing? Run. Because you're demonstrating, I never believed you could do it anyway. And what's the kid going to believe if they hear that enough? Of course I can't do it. I never thought I could. But if you tell your children, I believe in you. This is going to be hard. You're going to have to learn some things. You're going to have to get after this thing. But I believe at the end of this thing, you will accomplish what you set your mind to. What's that going to do for the child? And so Paul is doing that, and he's been doing that, we see it in 1 Corinthians, he's been doing that through this letter, and he's been doing it to others, saying, look, Titus, when you get there, know that I believe that they'll get this thing done. And that should give confidence to everyone. Did I see a hand? Yes, Michael. And not only does he express his confidence in them to them, but he speaks of them to other people. Yeah. With that same kind of boasting, and so uh, to your uh, to your analogy, the way that you would speak to other people about your children playing soccer is is it uh, this is pointless? They're they're not getting anything out of it. Or wow, it's amazing to see week to week how they're getting better and how what they're learning and how they're working together as a team and things like that. How do I, uh, how do I view uh, my ministry, and how do I speak of my ministry to to other people? Is it, uh, it it's pointless? Um, there's there's nothing coming out of this study, um, or uh, do we see uh, see the fruits of God in that? Yeah, absolutely. Got up here. We were doing studying on house Thursday night, and this made me, this makes me think about it because we were studying about if you have any conflict whatsoever with God in your life, whether it be sin, whether you're mad at Him because you feel like He's put up on you, whether it's stuff with any conflict, then you cannot be an encouragement to others, but you will only be a discouragement to others. And this seems so clear that Paul is saying to 
we need to get the sin and the, our conflicts with God out of our life, whether we admit we have them or not. You have to get those cleared out of your life. And once you do that, then you'll be a great encouragement to me, to Titus, to all of you, to one another. The encouragement will be unbounding. It'll, you know, to your walk to yeah, towards God. Absolutely. But it, you can't do that with any conflict of God. Right. In fact, we see that progression in the next couple of chapters. He addresses this and is thankful of the changes he's seeing in them, that Titus has seen in them, because chapters 8 and 9, he's going to bring up another instance where he boasted about this church to other churches, saying, they are generous, they offered to do this thing, to help these, these Christians. And he, he still, he kind of needs to prod them again and say, you need to finish. You promised you would do this, you need to finish. But he, he again demonstrates, yeah, we've, we've got to take care of some of these things first, so that my boasting about you in this other area of giving is, is not also um, hindered, right? So what specifically did the Corinthians' godly sorrow produce in them? It's actually an, a very interesting list. Um, and, and be prepared to elaborate. Maybe don't take them all, save some for others. But what, what do we see this godly sorrow producing in these Corinthians? Okay, we've got one up here with Alan. The eagerness to clear themselves. Yes. To set things right. To make sure they bring joy to Paul, not harm. Yeah, an eagerness to clear themselves, right? And we use that term, we've been accused of an offense. Oftentimes, we, we now use it to, we've been accused of a crime, right? I want to clear my name. And they've got an eagerness to do that, right? Something has been charged against them, and they're eager to clear their name. Yes, Josh? I would say next to that would be repentance. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that means they're changing. That means that they listened, they understood the things that Paul said that they needed to change, that they had something Yes. And yeah, we could do a whole study on how do you properly define repentance, right? Um, he makes a distinction here between there's a, there's a sorrowfulness of the world and there's a sorrowfulness uh, by the will of God or according to the will of God, a godly sorrow, and they are very different in what they produce. And so godly sorrow produces a repentance. It's I feel sorry for what I have done, and I'm going to do these things to demonstrate uh, that I am sorry. Yeah, Katrina? Um, it says what fear, and I think of um, when I'm interacting with our Duncans, um, sometimes one of them will get off by itself, and then it realizes it's by itself, and it's like, <gasps> and it runs back in the tribune. And I think when we, when we get into sin, sometimes we where we're at and that we're away from God and away from our safety and away from the love and we're like oh no and that can spur us back to um, to get back to close to him 
Uh, yeah, that's a great analogy. You, you said ducks, right? Okay, sorry. <laughs> but it can apply, right? If we take ourselves away from the place of safety, right? If we take ourselves away from the one who offers us refuge, we should be afraid. It's dangerous out there without God. And we were talking about that analogy last time, right? That God wants to dwell among us. He wants to tabernacle among us. He wants to be in the center of our camp, offering us protection. But if we choose to take ourselves away from that protection, it's a scary place out there. And if left to our own devices, sin will destroy us. And so there's this fear. Again, it's that word terror. These Corinthians recognize that if I stay where I'm at and I don't repent, I don't turn, I'm in a dangerous place. I don't want to be here. Yeah, what else? Josh? Mm-hmm. Godly sorrow produces repentance, but he doesn't take it to the end of what that ultimately means, which is life, right? It's life. And the opposite is worldly sorrow, which produces death. I don't think I always think of those two as being paired opposites. Repentance is the path to life. Worldly grief is death. Yeah. Yeah, verse 10, it says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And there's some important things happening there, right? That when I am sorry enough about what I've done, I'm not simply sorry that I got caught, or I'm sorry that the consequences are so bad. I'm sorry that I've hurt God. I'm sorry, in many cases, that I've hurt another. That's what I'm sorry for. And that leads me to repent, not just mentally acknowledge that I've done a wrong, but repentance implies a turning. The thing that I'm doing that's hurting others, that's hurting God, I'm going to turn from that. And it leads to salvation, and it removes regret. It doesn't plague me anymore. That, that clears up, and that comes from the forgiveness that God says, I, I'm going to remember your sins no, no more, so neither should you. Okay? Uh, yes? It also, in uh, verse 6, when he says that God comforts the humble, uh, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And then over here he says, in 9, he said, our joy is not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were sorrow, made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So I think oftentimes we go want to go straight to God and expect Him to work out everything in our lives when He's actually left us each other. Mm-hmm. So we aren't as involved with each other as we should be because he said God left Simeon Titus and here he said you won't suffer anything under us because we're in this together so I think sometimes we think we need to bypass 
ask each other and expect God to work out everything in our lives instead of us work helping each other along and working out things in our lives. Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. M- many of our sins involve other human beings. Now, there are some things that just, in my own mind, I can have bitterness towards an individual and they never know it. Uh, but many of our sins involve other people. That's, that's what was happening here, right? The, the thing that the Corinthians are being asked to change is because individuals had come in, falsely accused Paul. They had developed the wrong idea about him. He no longer loves us or cares about us. He's just being too harsh. So it had now affected a lot of other human beings. And, and their repentance seems to be addressing each of those. We're going to take care of this with Paul. We're going to make sure that Titus understands. Obviously, they're, they're making sure that their repentance is towards God as well. But they're, they're working to repair the, the relationships with other humans that they damaged. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. And he talks about what indignation. Yes. What anger they had, I guess, towards what was going on in their own lives. And, and until we can get upset with ourselves, instead of how we're upset with everybody else, maybe. Until we get upset with ourselves, fear and longing and zeal don't come. But mm-hmm. if you start with that, oh, how could I have done this? I long to be better. Yeah, and I've read a couple of different ideas as far as what, who was that indignation directed towards. Uh, it's not exactly clear here. I think it's right to say... I, I was angry at myself, so the Corinthians were angry at themselves that they had allowed themselves to to do this. I think it could also be they were angry at the people who had come in and made them think ill of their brother Paul. I think that's fair to say. Um, But not to remain, just like sorrow, let's not remain in sorrow and then be overwhelmed by it. Let's not remain in our indignation. And then do something sinful in retaliation. That's not godly. Um, but they allowed that as part of their repentance uh, to make these things right. Uh, Jill. And then uh, yeah. Um, I think another aspect of worldly grief is um, so these people are already grieved, but they don't know what to do with it. They um, there's a death that has happened, or they are they made a mess of their lives, and they don't they don't know how to cleanse themselves. It's, it's a root of they don't understand their relationship with the humanity's relationship with God. And so they just don't know what to do with this sadness. And I think we can even fall into that worldly grief if we don't have a proper understanding of um, the gospel. And if we put so much on, um, I don't know how to say this, um, like if we expect ourselves to be to be perfect and we're just devastated that we didn't live up to our own standard by our own might. Sure. Like I, I've been that before. Sure. And then I had a much better understanding of, of oh no God God wants to save us and he wants to um, he wants us to come back and he knows we're gonna fail. But we have to turn back to him rather than turning back to my own devices. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And look, we, we saw Paul warn against that earlier in this letter. Look, this person who sinned and you disciplined him as you should has now repented and you've got a choice, Corinthians, to make. 
You could continue to punish him. And what's going to happen to that individual? They're going to be overcome with sorrow. And potentially even, you know, toss their faith out altogether. But we, we certainly don't want that. That's not God's design. But you're right. I mean, you're not the only one. How many of us have messed up and go, oh, I've, I've ruined it all. Ugh. I'm back to square one. I've got to start all over. That, that's, not, that's not the sorrow we should be feeling. Uh, 1 John 2, um, yeah, 1 John 2 tells us, look, the, desire is a, the, the goal is that we do not sin. But if we sin, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? And it's not that when I sin, I've suddenly, you know, uh, I'm back to square one. I've got to start all over again by my own strength and my own self-will. That, that's, that's not it. Um, and he doesn't want that to happen to them. Let that prompt you to then rely again on Jesus who can cleanse you and make this thing right and do the things, uh, bear the fruit worthy of repentance. Right? Yes? What I said earlier made me think of Ephesians 3.20, that, you know, which we quote a lot now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Through most of my life, that's the only part of the verse that I've really um, thought about and, and brought to remembrance in times of trouble, but the whole verse says according to the power that works within us, and um, almost well, pretty much every time that I've really seen God working in my life, it's almost always been through my brothers and sisters, through other people, and that's going to apply, and it has applied in my life, in working um, through sin also, and not um, using that resource like I was talking about, not tapping that resource that God has given us has gotten me in trouble, and I think it's probably gotten everybody else in this room in trouble, and on the um, flip side, it has uh, saved me, he has helped save me through other people, mm-hmm. and has worked in, um, you know, exceedingly abundant ways through disciples, through my brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah. Look, there are some times when just reading the Word, we're reminded of, wow, I'm not doing something I should do. And the Word itself convicts us. But you're right, oftentimes it's because a brother or a sister had enough love for us to come to us and point something out and offer us encouragement, challenge us even. Um, And God uses uses our brothers and sisters in that way. Uh, Yeah, Mike? So I really appreciated Josh's comment on verse 10 because I think it's a... a, contrast of two 180 degree opposing ideas, right? God is sorrow and, and sorrow of the world. What, what each one produces. One produces death and one produces uh, salvation. Um, I think that the translators, because that word leading is not actually in the Greek. And so the translators, in my opinion, that, that can be viewed as almost a disservice, but it almost gives the idea, if you're not careful, of God is sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. There's still things that you you know, you're, you're, but, but, but it's, you're not there. But Paul's talking to believers. These are people that have already put on Christ. And so at that point, they have sinned, they repent, they return, they, they turn from that. And then at that point, I think it makes more sense to me. There again, I, I think we're all saying this, but to me, it makes more sense if you take that word leading out. For God and sorrow produces repentance to salvation. The idea of turning from the sin, turning back to God. You know, um, no longer uh, apart from God, once again, back with God again. So, just one Sure, yeah. 
Ja, Bob? One, one of the uh, examples sometimes that is brought up is that of Judas, who ah, yes. betrayed God, betrayed <coughs> Jesus, and he repented of that. So he had a sorrow. And he went back and tried to get the money, get the money back that he had been given for his uh, betrayal. And instead of turning everything around, turning back to God and doing what God would have him to do, he hung himself. Mm -hmm. On the flip side of that, you see Peter, mm -hmm. who denied Jesus three times, and he wept bitterly. But what did he do with his life? We have on record him preaching the first gospel sermon and a powerful one in that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. They both, both of them did a very similar sin against Christ, didn't they? And we, we can't evaluate sin, one's worse than the other. But Peter publicly, three different times said, I don't even know who you're talking about. Judas, his betrayal was in some ways kind of secret. Uh, many people didn't even realize what he was having. The other disciples didn't even realize what he was doing. Peter publicly denied Christ, and both of them felt sorry about it. Judas felt so sorry about it that this man who was greedy was willing at least to give the money back. But did he truly repent? It, he wasn't willing to then turn himself back to Christ and, and let Christ take care of that sin he said, it seems, the only recourse I have now is just to end my life. Whereas Peter felt bitterly about it. He wept bitterly. And we see him turning himself back to Christ, allowing that repentance um, to produce salvation. Uh, yes, Alan. And in verse 11 again, he talks about zeal and what punishment... You know, at every point you prove yourself innocent. Second Corinthians two six says, "For such a one, this punishment by majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love." They could not be held guilty because of the way they responded here. He said, "You have gone beyond. You have done this." You have given your zeal towards his punishment, and it's clear to you it's enough. What you've done is enough. But I wonder sometimes if we are afraid to punish. Sure. You know, and talk about discipline in the church or something like that. We're afraid to, to make that move because of our own fears. Sure. And yet, it. The right punishment, enough punishment, but not too much punishment, is what's required. Yeah, the right done with the right kind of heart. And I've, uh, I've got a quote um, from the book that we used in our, our recent uh, fellowship and, and discipline class that um, I'm not ready to get there quite yet, but definitely deals with what you're talking about. Um, yeah? To go along with what Mike said, when it comes to Peter, he did not in three times. But it says that Jesus prayed that his faith would fail not. I think sometimes we think Peter's faith didn't fail because it brought him back. And that's the beauty of repentance. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, 
he reminds me of me. How, how often have I, when confronted with, are you really a believer? Have I acted or even said something that maybe left that a question in someone's mind? You say he's a disciple of Christ and he just did what? And how often are we willing to then stand up and, and make that right? You know, acknowledge that, that we need to be more bold for Christ and, and say it. Did I see another hand? Uh, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> You've got it. Okay. Um, sort of going back to uh, Alan's point. This is, this is the heart of Paul's very challenging to me. It's seeing how he's living out Christ in, the, in these words. Um, and he, he's speaking of their sorrow and their repentance and salvation. And, uh, and so the, the way that I interact um, with, with others when I'm trying to encourage my own children uh, to repent or to, or to do the right thing um, isn't actually helping. So, so, so one, one way of thinking is, is it actually helping somebody if I am receiving them without evidence of that godly sorrow um, or of repentance? Um, there can be danger in that, but on the flip side, there, there is also great danger if I'm saying, you know what? They need to repent the way I, I, I am lording over them in their repentance, and, and sure. I will not receive them if they are not doing X, Y, and Z, if they do not um, Philippian jailer for me, and they actually uh, wash my wounds, and they actually do all of these things. Um, so, so that, that's a challenge to me as to how do, how do we have that unity, how do we in, in essence we see Paul forgiving them in these words. <laughs> he, he is reaffirming his love for them as we already talked about in chapter 2. That mm-hmm. he, he um, loves them and he, he sees that uh, repentance. He sees that sorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I need to be careful that I am not putting requirements on my forgiveness that God does not put on. Right? I'll forgive if... I need to be very careful. Like, And it's a balance. I'm, you know, I don't know that I could explain it other than how it is explained when John the Baptist came and preached a message saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when, when he's um, recounting his story in Acts 26 and verse 20, he says that the message that I preached was that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, I don't get to be the judge as to what those deeds specifically need to be. God knows the heart. And we are, we are required to repent and, and, and show with our lives that we really mean it. In, in our flawed, imperfect kind of way. 
But I should not, as an individual, create some stipulations there that the God himself does not and say, I'll only forgive when you've done these things. God doesn't do that for us. Yeah, Lisa. Right. And that has yeah. Been many times also. Yeah. So if if you come to me and you you ask me for forgiveness, even though you've done it seventy times, seven times, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you at face value and love you and forgive you. And if there's something in your heart that's not bearing true to that, it'll show itself. It'll show itself. That's correct, right? I I have the disadvantage. You have the disadvantage. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. All I can do is hear the words you say. I'm sorry I'm using you as an example here. I can hear the words that you say, and I can, I can look at, at how you act, and that's all I have. right? And so if, if you come to me, if anyone comes to me and, and is sorry, right? you ask for forgiveness. I, I have no right to say, I actually know what's in your heart. So contrary to what you're saying to me, I know. No, no. Someone comes and is seeking forgiveness. The answer is, I forgive you. I forgive you. Right? God knows the heart. I'll leave that to him. Uh, was there another hand? Yeah? Sometimes I think we forget that God said that we're the planters and the waterers. He said, you plant, you water. And we don't know where we're at in that stage. And he said, I'll give the increase. Sometimes right. I think we mistake ourselves for the increasers. Ah, yes. And so we're not. We're the planter and the water, and you don't know where you're at in that. So we don't really have a right to say, I forgive you or don't forgive you. or you know, It's like, this is what the scripture says. This is what we're supposed to be doing, and I'm telling you that. I don't know if I'm planting. I don't know if I'm watering. But I do know I'm not giving the increase. Right. Thank you for coming back to that. I was actually going to make that point back in in verse 6, but God, right? All the work that Paul did, all the work that Titus did, neither one of them were willing to say, look at then what I accomplish, right? No, we are the planters, we are the waterers, and then God's the one who's going to give the increase. Yeah, okay. So we talked about this a little bit back in chapter 2, telling them to reaffirm their love, and the question was, that I asked then, are there still consequences? So I think that definitely factors into what we were just talking about. Those two cannot be confused. Repentance or no forgiveness is something we can give to someone. But if there are consequences, that doesn't mean you haven't forgiven them. Right. That's like the embezzler do we put him back in as the treasurer? Right. I can forgive him. I can, and we can do all that exactly as God would want in the heart, but it's not a wise decision to put him back in right. as the treasurer. Right. So it is so easy to see someone asking for consequences and say, oh, you haven't forgiven. That is not true. Those are two totally separate things. 
So when I hear this, it's like, yes, and, and what you just said about the heart, that's where the thing is. That's where you don't know the hearts. And even in the reverse situation, you don't know the heart of someone just because they say, don't make that guy a treasurer. You don't know their heart that, well, you haven't forgiven. You can't say that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, consequences are part of our sin, right? And sometimes uh, we still need to bear, bear those consequences. And repentance happens, forgiveness happens, as it should. Um, but we can think of sin in our own lives, where we still have to bear out the results of the bad choices we made. And that doesn't mean that God didn't forgive us because he, he let those consequences unfold. Well, no. Sometimes we, we still need to bear the, the consequences of, of what we did. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I just want to—I want to read read uh, a series of of paragraphs from uh, this book. Um, James South is is the the author. Uh, it's called Church Discipline. This is uh, uh, something that that we used in our fellowship class. Um, he says that that truth telling can be a risky business, but the reality is that love is always risky. When we speak truthfully with someone, we run the risk of being rejected or becoming the object of their... um, uh, I did not spell that word correctly. uh, Of their scorn, really. So it's easier just to keep quiet. Yet over and over again, the scriptures teach us to speak the truth. When Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well, he didn't allow her to avoid the truth about her spiritual condition as revealed in her sad marital history. His goal in probing the subject of her marriage wasn't to embarrass her or to cause pain, but to draw her out when she could, so that she could face the truth about her life. Once he had done so, she was ready to hear his message about the living water, but it took confrontation with the truth to get her to realize her need much less act on it. We all have our failings, but that doesn't mean that that they are to be ignored when we see them gaining a foothold in one another's lives or when they are creating problems for the body as a whole. Rather, we are to confront these people in situations truthfully and lovingly so that the necessary corrections can be made. This, too, is a form of discipline, one which, if practiced more consistently than is usually the case, would prevent many bad situations from becoming worse. Where Christians regularly speak the truth and love to one another, discipline will occur naturally and spontaneously because speaking the truth and love is discipline, or at least the beginnings of it, by openly declaring the gospel truths which make us one body in Christ, by confessing our weaknesses and struggles and sins, and therefore our need for Christ and each other, And by lovingly confronting each other about sin whenever necessary, we contribute to the growth of the church in love so that it will grow up in every way into him who is head into Christ, so that it builds itself up in love. It isn't easy, but it's worth it. And I just love, it it was this whole chapter on speaking the truth in love, right? You cannot do one over the other. You can't ignore one over the other. You've got to speak the truth. But you've got to do it in love. You're not trying to harm the person. You're not trying to punish the person. You're not trying to add stipulations. To the, you're, you're loving that person enough to, in a humble way, 
Um, tell them what they need to hear so that they can be made whole again. And, and we see Paul doing that. He spoke the truth in love, and he said some hard things. Uh, but you cannot ignore the fact that he cared for these people deeply. And we see the, the fruit of their repentance bearing out. Uh, thank you. We're going to be in uh, chapter 8, starting on Wednesday.